0: Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Deus Latham. This is episode 131. Mzilikazi Kumala was trying to piece together his shattered ama and Debele after the attack on Masekha in early 1837 by the Boers and their allies, the Grikwa and the Rolong. Then in mid-year, he'd been attacked again by Dingana's impis, the Amazulu. He'd managed to survive that invasion, but things were looking very bad as he hunkered down in his zimisi of Egabeni in the Mariko area of what is now northwest province. Across southern Africa, movers and shakers were moving and shaking. And further afield, world history was rollicking along at a pace. Charles Dickens had started publishing Oliver Twist in serial form in that year. The Seminole people attacked the Americans at Fort Foster in Florida, and the city of Chicago had been incorporated. British-born businessmen William Proctor and James Gamble started selling soap in Cincinnati, Ohio, thus launching the mega-company Proctor & Gamble. The Irish and the Yankees had fought viciously in Boston's Broad Street. Queen Victoria had acceded to the throne at the tender age of 18 after the death of William IV. A massive hurricane called Race's Hurricane had destroyed much of the Caribbean, Texas, and the Gulf of Mexico. Abolitionist and newspaper editor Elijah Lovejoy had been murdered by a pro-slavery mob in Alton, Illinois. In Galilee, an earthquake killed 7,000 people in what was then the Ottoman Syria. Another earthquake in Valdivia in south-central Chile caused tsunamis that killed thousands all the way across the Pacific Ocean in Japan. And speaking of Japan, Charles King set sail in the American merchant ship Morrison to Japan, but was turned away there by cannon fire. This was 100 years before the Second World War, but these two nations often have had a love-hate relationship. Sitting in his home in Aberdeen in Scotland, Robert Davidson had just built the first electric locomotive powered by galvanic cells, which are batteries to you and me. While Davidson was discovering the power of galvanic cells, in the newly named city of Durban in Natal, which had by now dropped the inverted comma and was just Durban, the traders were worried. Dingana was their chief concern, if you excuse the pun. Captain Alan Gardner, the self-chosen missionary to the Zulus, had written his book and returned to England to fetch his family. Still, both the traders and Dingana regarded Gardner as the leading representative of what were now being called the Natal community, despite his absence. Hunter Thomas Halstead had been sent packing from a trip to Zululand by Dingana, and the Zulu king made it clear that he would only do business with the whites at Durban through Gardiner. And Gardiner the missionary was bewildered. He was in an invidious position. How could he advise the Amazulu on the way to eternal life, when he was also advising the settlers on matters diplomatic with Dingana? Dingana was, of course, using the missionaries, calling them to his sense of power at mgungu where he'd meet them outside his Izigodlu. Dingana's come-hither campaign was only just beginning. Three new American missionaries had arrived, Alden Grout, George Champion, and Dr. Newton Adams. They had arrived in Durban in 1835, leaving their wives behind because Gardiner had warned them that Durban was no place for the squeamish. Some say it's still like that. Alden Grant was shocked when he disembarked by the notorious small skiff onto Durban Beach. The white traders, he said, were promiscuous. We found at Natal about thirty white people, two white females, one a married woman, the other living with one of the settlers, he sniffed in a somewhat scandalized way. Most of the white men have under them Zulas, and control them as chiefs and most of them have one, and some five or six black wives. In 1836, the three American missionaries made it to Mgungunglofu, where they presented Dingana with their presents, as was the custom. These were ritually laid out in a circle, a razor, an umbrella, pictures, padlocks, beads, a knife, a tea canister, handkerchiefs. The missionaries claim he was impressed, but he wasn't. The Zulu king inspected their wagon instead and laid claim to a piece of green baize. But on the matter of establishing a mission station, Dingana was evasive, saying he'd get back to that at a future date. It was a full year later that Dingana granted George Champion his first mission in Zululand, which was built a scant 20 kilometres north of the Tugela River, close to a site chosen earlier by Alan Gardiner at Inganani, near where KwaDukuza or Stanga is today was beginning to worry Dingana was a prophecy. Jacob Daboulamansi, who was Shaka's interpreter, the man who'd swam to the shore in St. Lucia and then ended up at Shaka's side, 15 years earlier, Jacob had warned the Zulu that they would be overrun by the settlers. First the hunters and traders would come, he said. Then the missionaries would come and ask to build their houses inside Zulu territory. Then the settlers and the soldiers would come and you will be forced to leave. For Dingaan, this was proving to be an accurate prophecy. Here now were the missionaries, clamoring to build their houses inside his land. Surely the next act was likely to come true? By now Durban was a busy place. Dingaan was vacillating about its future. Trader John Kane, who was well ensconced inside Amazulu life, managed to negotiate with Dingon to allow the traders some latitude, and remain there for now, with assistance from Gardiner, despite his invidious position. This relationship was made more fractious by the Kadi incidents I mentioned last episode, and the traders were refusing to hand over the refugees who'd made their way south. If you remember, Dingana told Kadi chief Dube to bring him poles for his palisade, although some oral tradition says Dingana killed Dube for, Dancing better than him, but either way, there's no disputing what was now an open clash between the Zulu king and the white traders. Dingaan had demanded that Qadi refugees be sent back across the Tugela River. The traders refused, and then began to fortify Durban. The crisis now brought into sharp relief the role of ex military men like Alexander Bigger, the former captain and paymaster of the 85th Regiment had been cashiered from the British Army in 1819 following a scandal. He basically misappropriated regimental funds and was stripped of his rank. He was quite lucky he wasn't shot. Bigger had popped up a year later, leading some of the 1820 settlers to Grahamstown. Then he ran into trouble once more, and his attempts at farming were a complete disaster. So, like many others floating around southern Africa, he headed for the frontier and arrived in Durban. Bigger disliked the missionaries. He had spent enough time in the Eastern Cape to be infused with a deep-seated anger against the men in black who had interfered in colonial matters with their human rights meddling. Ding threats reminded Bigger of him, the war doctor and and being military-minded, he realized this threat provided him with a perfect opportunity. He was elected as commandant of the Port Natal volunteers and organized local men, black and white, into a body of troops and then appointed captains to oversee this group. Lord of the Flies, some would say. Of course, he appointed his son, Robert, as well as John Kane and Henry Ogle, as these captains, and the so called army began to fortify Durban's stockade. Not done, Bigger issued a proclamation in May 1837 calling on the inhabitants of Durban to hold themselves ready in cheerful obedience to his orders. And there would be no shortage of orders which is the automatic knee-jerk reaction of a person with no power being given a smidgen of power. It's the sign of crass bureaucracy, terrified of being exposed as useless idiots and frauds. They flood the world with blundering edicts. In at his headquarters, a.k.a. a seedy hut, Bigger issued a stream of orders and instructions over the next week. This is not quite Joseph Conrad Heart of Darkness territory, but you get the picture. On the other hand, the traders believed they'd found a long-awaited military protector against the dreaded Dingana, this Captain Bigger. The dreaded Dingana had heard about all of that, and instead of ordering an impi to teach the impudent Bigger a lesson, he withdrew the demands that the Qadi refugees be handed over. He'd already killed Duba and his point had been made, and furthermore, he didn't want to create more tension with the British. It helped that a real captain, Alan Gardiner, the missionary, had just arrived back in Durban by the stage with his wife and three children in tow. He planned to keep them well away from the seething, sex-riddled Durban port area, taking them instead to the wonderful scenic Berea. But Gardiner at first was in no condition to do much. Two weeks before he arrived at the end of May 1837, his eldest child, a daughter of 12, had died at sea. He carried her body to the Berea mission he'd set up and dug a grave for his firstborn. There was a lot of goings-on going on, and we'll get back to Gardner later. Dingana was monitoring three main invasions, contacts that were new around Zululand. The first, which had been going on for two decades, with the traders shooting up his wildlife, denuding the felt of his elephants and rhino. The second were the missionaries, determined, it appeared, to infuse his people with their strange story of creation and eternal life, when all his people knew that death was death and that the power lay in the ancestors. The third were the Boers. The third worried Dingan the most. These people acted like Africans, not Europeans, despite their outfits and their God. They acted very differently to the English traders, who he regarded as useless, weak, self-indulgent bribable. The missionaries he recognized as even less threatening they were full of this talk of the love of Jesus and furthermore they were useful in diplomacy. Dingana had an inkling about what may happen starting three years before in 1834 when he met Pete A. Senior who traveled from the eastern cape and asked Tingana about land. The Zulu called the Boers Amabunu, as did Amatoza but they did not call the English traders and hunters that. No, the English were called Mlungu white foam that blows in off the sea and blows back out. The Boers did not blow in off the sea. They came over land like the other African threats. They were the Way up on the highveld now, the Boers were on the move and some were moving directly towards Dingan. Something was about to happen that escaped Dingan's attention at first, but later, when he heard about it, it was to lead directly to the death of Retief. In the third quarter of 1837, Port Gita and Ratif were making their way to the edge of the escarpment with the Voortrekkers, from where they were going to split up. Retief was going to make his way down the Drakensberg to Natal, and Port Gita was going to turn inland, staying on the high ground. The Voortrekkers were plodding their way along the Sand River, heading in a north-easterly direction, taking note of the empty plains, which Mzilikasi had purposefully used as a buffer zone. On the 1st of September 1837, they camped near where the town of Senegal is today, then continued further east past where the modern town of Paul Rue lies. Finally, they arrived at the edge of the escarpment, near Warden in the Free State. Retief Ever, the letter writer, hauled out his quill and wrote a letter to Andries Stockenstrom in the Cape, trying to explain the Fuhrtrekkers' actions. He also claimed that Griqua leader Andries Wartburg could be planning a raid on the trekkers from the southwest so he was now going to head down the Drakensberg into Natal as quickly as possible. Before that, Retief frequently visited the camps of the other Czech leaders struggling to unite the folk. On the 12th of September, he met the recalcitrant Pete Ace and Potkita. More heated discussions followed, during which some of the men brandished their sannas, their muskets, threateningly. Ace was so angry, he leapt onto his horse, and as he rode off, someone shouted at him, who zal dunga no met the race verloop? Zal ons allemaal saam na Natal gaan, or zal jij op How will things go with the journey now? Will we all go to Natal together, or will you be on your own? He shouted back, Each party goes its own way. Some go forward in front, others go the same way, but separate on the flank. Each is entitled to choose his own path. Nobody brings up the rear. At least that was what Erasmus Smith wrote later in his diary. You, of course, remember Erasmus. Gerrit Maritz's somewhat despised brother in law, the predikant, who Porthita ignored. A few days later, on the 16th of September, 1837, Porthita and Maritz came to say goodbye to Ratif, who was going to head on to Natal with 50 wagons, about 200 folk, and hangers on. While Maritz and Porthita disagreed, they did agree on one thing and that was the need to destroy the Amandibeli, De determined to eviscerate the threat from the Marico region and to claim back their cattle still held by Mzillikautzi. They were also obsessing about something else. Maritz and Porchita wanted to recover the three very young Liebenbach children who had been seized by the Amandibeli warriors after they were found hiding in the camp overrun the year before during the battles along the Val. Sarah, Anna Maria and Christiane. The entire family dead. The Poetrekers at first thought they'd all been killed and their bodies left on the felt somewhere. Christiane did in fact die of an illness later, but it so happened that the two small girls were very much alive and well and living with Amar We know all of this because a British officer called Captain Cornwallis Harris had taken extended leave from his regiment in India and had arrived at zilikazi's main base at Egabeni a few months after the Vile Battles. While staying at the Royal Kral, he'd been served by an unhappy young Greek girl called Trui David, who was now also Mzilikazi's concubine. She wanted to go home, and told Harris that the day he arrived, two small Dutch girls who had been living nearby were sent away so he'd not see them. These were the two Libenbach girls, and now the four wanted them back. Meanwhile, more trekkers were joining, including a man who'd become a legend. Andres Pretorius joined Maritz's camp and the two were good friends. Andres' two brothers, Pete and Hercules Albertus, had also arrived, along with Nicolaas Smith and Pete Lewitt, who were on a reconnaissance trip. They wanted to assess how things were going with the voortrekkers before deciding whether or not to emigrate from the Cape. Andres Pretorius was going to make waves all right. He was well over six foot six tall, lanky, confident, amiable, but blunt at times. He had commanded hundreds of Boers from Graaf Reinet during the Sixth Frontier War. He had a knack for leadership. Pretorius recognized the preparation for war when he saw it and asked Port if he could join the attack on Imzilikazi. Piet Ace threw in his lot as well and the voortrekkers prepared their sanners for the coming fight. It was at this moment that Gerrit Maritz fell ill with fever so Port and Ace were nominated to lead the assault on the Amman 330 men a large commando eventually rode out of the camp at Sekerbosrand near where Heidelberg is today in October 1837. They were accompanied by 50 colored Achterreus or attendants and 60 Baralong warriors. They took half a dozen wagons along to carry food and ammunition. This diverse and extremely powerful mobile war party crossed the Vaal River at Commando Drift and headed west. They stopped where Clagstorp is today and left the wagons there with about 30 men as the main force headed off towards Egabeni in the Mariko area. The Boers remaining behind had drawn the short straw, but were promised a cut of the cattle and the booty. Port and Ace's main force camped near Malmani, south of Mosecha, on the 1st of November. They were covering the ground quickly without having to bother about the wagons. The next day, they reached the abandoned town of Mosecha. They had plundered that almost a year earlier and set up their main camp between Noitgedacht and Ruisloot. The Baralong had been keeping an eye on Msilakazi and two of their chiefs, Matlabe and Mongala, briefed Porthita and Ace, explaining that the Amandabeli warriors had stationed themselves at the village called Masek. The trekkers were to strike Egabeni after this. The plan of attack? Simple. The Boers would mount their horses and be strung out in a long line and then they'd ride directly at the Amandabeli early in the morning, aiming at each different warrior or hut as they approached. They'd fire a volley then retreat so that the Amandibeli stabbing spears would be of little use, and then repeat. Early in the morning of the 4th of November, 1837, the poor trickers bowed their heads in prayer, mounted their horses, and galloped into Mazeg, catching the Amandibeli completely by surprise. Behind the Boers, the Baralong waited for their turn to attack. Most of the Amandibeli and Duna, or headmen, were with the Mziligazi at Egabeni, and there was no hope for the 2,000 or so warriors. The carnage was complete. Women and children fled the village pursued by the Baralong, who killed as many as they could then set fire to the huts. The commando swept forward torching homestead after homestead as they advanced while the Amandabeli beat their drums as warnings which came too late. By nightfall Mezeg was destroyed and the Fortrickers camped nearby. The next day the carnage continued the Fortrickers chasing the Amandabeli north towards Igabeni. Mzilekazi tried to counterattack. At a place called Maya's Kral, but as the Amaindebeli warriors formed up in their horn formation to outflank the Boers, the Trekkers assembled in a square formation with their backs to each other. That meant they could not be outflanked, and as they fired their Sannas, the Amaindebeli withdrew. Sections of Amaindebeli warriors were isolated and cut down by the withering fire from the Trekkers. Pete Ace had been respected, but it was during these battles that his name was elevated to warrior status. He seemed to be everywhere, and in the thick of the fighting, never on the fringes. So too Portquita, who almost paid for his courage with his life. A warrior spotted him, and through his spear, Portkita just weaved out of the way and rode over the man with his horse. By November 9th, the commander reached Igabeni, where had decided to stand and fight. The Amandabeli finally deployed their most fearsome weapon, their weapon of mass destruction called fighting cattle, sending these charging into the footrekkers like the koi had done to the Portuguese in the 1480s and the VOC for the next 200 years. The Amandabeli had also sharpened the horns and the warriors ran behind the charging beasts, a clash the likes of which must have been truly mind-boggling to observe. The charge almost worked. The 4 were stunned for a moment by the pure audacity of large cattle with long, sharpened horns thundering towards them. But they pulled themselves together and fired simultaneously, a volley, then another. The blue-black smoke drifted across the felt. The sounds of blasting cannons filled the air. The oxen became terrified by the alien sound of musket fire, made more terrifying by the smell of gunpowder. They turned and stampeded back into the amandebeli ranks, and now it was the warriors' turn to break. Pandemonium ensued, and Mzilikasi's crack troops turned and fled north, leaving behind about 1,000 dead and wounded. On the 12th of November, 1837, hundreds of Amandabele were seen pouring over the ridges of Tour de Port, fleeing from the place they had taken in their own violent raids, victims of a brand of violence they had delivered to the high field, but taken to an entirely new level by the firearms of the Foutrekkers. This time, there was no coming back for this generation of Amendebele. Of course, they would be back as mine workers and labourers after the discovery of gold in Johannesburg, but that's another story. The Amandabeli now shattered into two main sections and vanished into what is modern-day Botswana. Later, they would reunite north of the Limpopo River in Zimbabwe in a place called Matabililand. And what of the Liebenbach children? Well, they were still with the Amandabeli. Christian was now called Valapi, or Where Do You Come From? Anna Maria was known as Mswiniana, Why Are You Always Crying? Because she'd been inconsolable since her capture. And little Sara was called Tului, named after a river, it's thought. We'll come back to that story later. Not one of the 334 trickers had died during the battles around Igabeni, although some were slightly hurt in the melee. It's thought around 2,000 Amandabeli warriors had been killed in the nine days of battles and in subsequent skirmishes. From now on, Mzilikazi would no longer be a threat to the furtrekkers to the northwest and the new owners of the felt-controlled lands that stretched north of the Orange River to eastern Bechuanaland, land, as it was called, Botswana, from the Kalahari Desert south to Kuruman. It was a triumphant commander that returned to Seikobos Behind them, they left a completely denuded felt, over which hung the stench of death, and as they rode back past the smouldering villages, many held hankies to their faces to make the ride bearable. The commander first arrived back at Chatzrant where Pretorius awaited, and Portita handed over 69 cattle to Baralong chief Matlabe, and they were apparently satisfied. But distinctly dissatisfied was Maritz, who had recovered from his illness, and he rode from Sekabosrand to Chatzrand to greet the victorious Porthita and Ace. Chatzrand, by the way, lies about halfway on the N twelve highway between Potchefstroom and Johannesburg. Moritz was furious when Porthita said some of the cattle would be given to the men who'd fought the earlier battles against the at Moser almost a year ago. Moritz couldn't believe his ears, and his eyes when he counted how many of the seized Amanderbeli cows were now going to be parceled out. Maritz said the men had already been paid in loot. Surely the cattle should be divided up amongst the 330 men of this commander. Ace then sided with Port Gita, and the three leaders began to berate each other in full public view as their men looked on with some embarrassment. Port Gita would not be denied. He was a military man, and Meritz was not. He backed down. But that meant the die was cast for Maritz and his people because it was then that Gerrit Moritz finally decided he was definitely going to follow Piet Retief into Natal. Pretorius had his own plans. He had seen enough of the Haifelt in the summer to know just what a superb place it is for farming, and returned to Letzkral near Graf Reinet and prepared to join the great trek himself. While Mzilikazi was being defeated, Piet Retief's party had forged their own way east. Arriving at the edge of the escarpment on the 2nd of October 1837, where his group surveyed the stunning views down from the Drakensberg, there was the promised land lying below. The party of 50 wagons lagered at a huge outcrop of what they called Kärkenberg, Church Mountain. And on the 6th of October, Retief led a small group of 15 men and 4 wagons out of the lager to descend the Drakensberg by way of what is now called the Ratif's Pass. His daughter, Deborah, would later paint her father's name on a rock here to commemorate his birthday, which was the 12th of November. Little did she know that 12th of November, 1837, would be Pete Retief's last birthday. What happened next is for next episode. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. It helps increase the visibility of the series. You can head off to the website desmondlatham.blog if you want to contact me or through Twitter x at Des Latham. Until next, Totsies.